a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Neil Whittaker, sophisticated, stylish, with a wealth of international experience in publishing and interior design. That's the guy we know, and he's one of Australia's foremost style gurus. He became a household name as a judge on Nine's Logie-winning Smash It! The Block and co-host of Foxtel's number one series, Love It or List It! Australia. He certainly has a chemistry with Andrew Winter, who's his cohort. Neil also boasts a hugely successful international publishing career and has edited some of the most respected lifestyle magazines in the world, including Vogue Living, Vogue Entertaining and Travel, Bell, Delicious and Waitrose Food Illustrated. Neil also boasts a hugely successful international publishing career and has edited some of the most respected lifestyle magazines in the world, all of which you'll recognise. Vogue Living, Vogue Entertaining and Travel, Bell, Delicious and Waitrose Food Illustrated. And actually, that's our connection. That's where I met him. He was the editor at BBC Good Food when George and I were contributing to BBC Good Food, certainly at the start of our MasterChef careers. He describes himself as an accidental foodie and actually wrote a book with the same name with some of the best chefs in Australia. So, with my great pleasure, we welcome Neil Whittaker. Neil, lovely to have you on. We just did a... um, a nice little intro that said essentially the international man of mystery. Thirty, <laughs> we didn't say that, but it feels like it. Thirty years, a career yes. of thirty years spanning two countries. I love that. But our yes. and we'll talk about that. But our connection goes back to BBC Good Food days with George Columbaris and you know our I don't know wasn't rise to fame. I suppose, yeah, it was a little bit, wasn't it? Everybody well, got of. to know who no, we you, were. You'd, you'd risen to fame, Gary, by the time we did Good Food. Yeah, was it? I don't know. It was very early on in the piece. But that's where, was, that's our food connection, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. Good Food magazine. The magazine world is my is my world. Yeah. Um, and my sort of food career and my magazine career ran uh, in parallel and in tandem with each other. But yes, you, you and I met when we launched BBC Good Food into Australia. And I'm trying to think when that would have been. It would I, have been about 2008, bit later, I reckon. MasterChef really hit its straps early on, which was 2009, 10, 11, and I think that was kind of the okay, height of our, okay. you know, viewership. I mean, it was up around like the three to back in the 2010. Early, yeah. There you go. Because I, I remember you know, MasterChef magazine launched at the same time as BBC Good Food, but but I managed to uh, attract you over to BBC Good Food. Yeah, thank goodness for that. <laughs> and also remember that when I would hear from Neil was always, nah, recipe's too complicated, nah, doesn't make sense. He had a very clear idea of uh, what the readership wanted, where it was going and what recipes, et cetera, you wanted from us. Yes, I did. I did. I mean, I I think, uh, you know, we knew that we were sort of falling into that everyday food niche um, and that was our audience. But I think I think we allowed you to do a bit of special stuff as no, well. No, we did. Didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. absolutely did. And, and by then, I mean, you'd, you know, we can cover it obviously in more detail, but it's just to give those that are listening that know you for different things now. You'd worked in magazines for many years and mm. uh, Waitrose Food Illustrated, um, something that I remember back in the UK, you were instrumental yep. in launching that to market and making that a great success. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, I did. I launched that magazine and thank you for remembering it. Um, except I was there before it was Waitrose. So ah, that, that magazine even better ran, then. Well, it, it ran for a couple of years independently. Yep. 
I was working for a publishing company in London, uh, John Brown Publishing, and they had a very beautiful magazine uh, called Gardens Illustrated. Do you remember that yeah, one? Yeah, I do, yeah. And cutting a very long story short, I was desperately keen to launch a magazine into the UK market that was like the, the fantastic food magazines that were coming out of Australia. You know, I used oh. to get them sent to me on subscription. Um, and the best food mags in the world were coming out of this country, things like Gourmet Traveller, Vogue Entertaining. And I, I wanted to bring something like that into the UK. And I said to John Brown, who was my boss and the owner of the publishing company, can't we do Food Illustrated? to go as the sort of sister magazine to Gardens Illustrated. And, and fortunately, John, being the sort of maverick that he was, said, yeah, all right. And that's basically how it was born. And as I say, for, for a, I think it ran for about 18 months as an independent mag uh, before Waitrose kind of moved in on it and said, um, you know, they would like to basically buy it. Yeah. Um, and then it became published as Waitrose Food Illustrated thereafter. It was a bit of a game changer at the time. I mean, I mean, it's inspirational idea, number one, to bring something like that to market. But what were the challenges at the time? I mean, the food scene in the UK, much like Australia, because people always talk about the Australian food scene and how much it's changed. I mean, it was pretty terrible. When I left uh, the UK in 91, London was the epicentre, but everything else was struggling. Yeah, I mean, look, it, the, the 90s wasn't the most interesting decade, um, <laughs> although by the end of the decade, things had substantially... I mean, I guess you're talking about restaurants, I'm talking about publishing, um, but, the, you know, there's a sweet spot where the two met. The, the, the magazine market, as I remember it at the time, was dominated by Good Food, BBC Good Food, uh, which was a very, very good magazine, but a very kind of, you know, everyday yeah. magazine. And then, of course, there was the the, the uh, juggernaut that was the Sainsbury's magazine, do you remember, that Delia yeah. Smith launched? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and really, there wasn't anything else. There was just those two titles and, and nothing much else. And I, I thought there was room in the market for something that was a little bit more aspirational, um, a little bit more coffee table, and a little bit more about the producers and the creatives behind the food, you know, something that talked about chefs and, and growers and, and producers. And that's really how Food Illustrated was born. What was the most difficult thing? Because that's you're bringing that to a market that wasn't used to it. And also I think, and, you know, I might be wrong because I tend to have a particular idea of Britain in the 80s and 90s, but mm. uh, an audience that's not really tuned into local and great produce and local farmer. Well, the most difficult thing, I think, was finding the audience for it. That was where we struggled. I mean, look, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but looking back sort of more than 20 years ago, or looking back more than 20 years, rather, you know, I think we could have, we could have done a lot more uh, in terms of marketing and promotion. Um, you know, I, I don't think we were very smart at that. Um, but certainly finding an audience for that mag was difficult. And the people that loved it really loved it, but there just weren't enough of them. There really weren't. And do you know what? That magazine developed a cult following here in Australia. Ah. It's kind of why I'm here. Ah. Because it was that magazine that led me here to Australia. And what was the contact? What was the thing that, that springboarded you in or, you know, gently nudged you? Gently nudged me to, well, I'd been to Australia a few, I think I came to Australia for the first time in, I think it was 1993. I was trying to remember this morning whether it was 92 or 93, but I think it was 93. And at that time, Gary, I was editing the M&S magazine for good old Marks and Sparks. Yeah. Marks and Spencer. Um, it makes my mum proud even when you just say it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, had a ma well, I have to stop, hold that thought. I had a massive argument with my mother at Christmas time when I visited the UK last because she was just bemoaning the fact that Marks and Spencer's, which is like a, it's like a national institution, and the, yes. fact that, the fact that the knickers and the 90s changed, 
de- it was devastating for Mum because it's like yeah. a, it's like Qantas is to Australians. Yes. They feel like they own it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was just about to say there is no <laughs> real equivalent to it in Australia. But yeah, you're right. There, there wouldn't be a single person in the UK that doesn't know M and S. Yeah, for for whatever reason. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. I was ed- I was editing their magazine. Um, I had the good fortune to edit their magazine for them for several years in the early nineties. And um, while I was doing that, I came out to Australia on, on a trip um, that was sponsored by Qantas, actually, and the Queensland Tourism Board. Um, and we came out here to shoot fashion for the magazine. And I fell in love with Australia straight away. So that, combined with the fact that I was already admiring the magazines that were coming out of Australia, mm. um, really kind of, you know, it inspired me to want to come and live here. So fast forward to 1999, and I met a guy in London called Matt Hanbury. Now, Matt is the nephew of Rupert Murdoch. And Matt, at the time, had a magazine business here in Australia called Murdoch Magazines, which later became Pacific Magazines and which now is kind of Bauer Magazines. Yeah. Um, but but 20-odd years ago, he had an independent publishing company called Murdoch Magazines, and they published Marie Claire Magazine here. And he wanted to launch a Marie Claire food title. And he had seen Food Illustrated, liked it, contacted me and said, would you come over to Australia and launch this food magazine? And that's kind of how it all happened. Yeah. But the, but the twist in that tale, Gary, is that the magazine that he brought me over to launch never actually launched. Uh, I won't even go into the details of why, but uh, it, it never actually happened, but I ended up staying anyway. Yeah, I like detail, though. Come on, tell us. <laughs> why not? Well, look, had, had that magazine launched, it probably would have been the closest thing to the Donna Hay magazine because Donna was on Marie Claire in those days. She was the young food editor. Right. And, and the magazine... Do you remember about 20... Well, more than 20 years ago, Marie Claire Australia published some very, very successful cookbooks. They yeah. were large format. And they were good, I remember. And they were soft, softback mm. books, and they were, like, they were called hot, yeah. cold. Well, that was all Donna. That was Donna oh, Hay yeah. um, when she was first starting out. And those books were a phenomenal success all around the world. Um, and that's why Matt wanted to launch a magazine. Um, but then he changed his mind. Um, he decided that maybe it was it was too early, that the market wasn't quite ready for a magazine, and he would just continue publishing the books. Um, but by that stage, I was here in Sydney. Yeah. And look, and I never went. I never went home. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> never went home. I'm still here. Twenty one years later. <laughs> so. Rewinding a little bit, what got you into magazines and journalism? Because, I mean, when I looked at your background, you're from Margate. Yep. You know, yes. For people that don't yep. know, little seaside town in Kent. It's got sandy beaches, hasn't it? It's got beautiful beaches, actually. Yeah. yeah. When you say beaches, it makes me laugh because there's no one in Australia that believes that England actually has sandy beaches. Yeah, go, yeah no, beautiful no, no, beaches. No, there's, there's sandy beaches there. What was, mm. what was life like growing up as a young man in Margate? It's not the epicentre of the world. <laughs> and, you and can it, say that again. <laughs> you can say that again. No, look, um, I had, I think I had a very ordinary upbringing. I don't think it was anything particularly um, remarkable. It was a normal late 60s, early 70s upbringing. Yeah. Um, there was myself and, and uh, my two brothers. I have one brother who's older than me and one who's younger. And then my parents. Now, my world changed, I guess, in 1976 when I was 14 years old when my father passed away very unexpectedly, um, and he was only in his early 40s at the time. 
So I think that was a, a big change. That's when suddenly our family were, you know, became anything but ordinary. Yeah. Um, but up until that point, I think I had a perfectly normal childhood. Margate was was my world. You know, looking back on it now, yeah, it was a pretty sleepy place. But at, at, at a young age, you you don't know any different. It's it's the world that you live in. Yeah, and I think I don't know whether you feel the same. I look maybe I just romanticise the idea. But I grew up in a small seaside town, and I kind of. I think I do romanticise it. I, I had a which very one, which one did you grow up in? Hailing Island, which is near um, Chichester. Um, Essex, yeah, no, uh, Sussex. It's Hampshire, 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 and on the border okay. of West Sussex. Mm. And you know, lots of sandy beaches. You know, we had little you know cops and forests and things like that. And I kind of felt it was a bit looking back. It was a bit any Blyton, but I think I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit. We, you know, as kids, small community, everybody knew each other. I mean, mm. if there was any sh- shenanigans going on in our town. Everybody knew it. Parents knew it within hours. <laughs> was it like that with you? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. I mean, I, I was always a bit of a loner. Um, I, I sort of liked my own company. I don't recall ever really being part of a, of a gang. Um, mm. I had a, a couple of close friends. I mean, food was fairly central to my childhood because my paternal grandfather was um, a fishmonger. Right. Um, and then later in life, he became a grocer, a green grocer, as we used to call him. And then my father joined that business too. So, you know, food was a bit of a backbone, I guess. And whether you recognised it at the time, probably not as a kid, but, you know, that area of Britain is a bit of a food bowl. I mean, certainly yeah. for seafood, Whistable oysters and, you mm. know, apples and plums and all sorts of things, really wonderful. But I wonder if that translated onto your dinner table when you were a kid. Yes and no, Gary. What what do I remember? Look, I mean, I always feel when when I'm asked that kind of question, I always feel that like I need to, you know, say that I, I owe everything to my mother and yeah. my grandmother and, you know, the smells in the kitchen. As a, but, but it wasn't really like that. My mother, God love her, was an adequate cook, but she was not an amazing cook. Um, and her mother, my paternal, no, my maternal grandmother was beyond hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's be honest. Um, so it, it's not that it was amazing, amazing food, but lots of little food anecdotes pop into my mind. I, I remember when we were kids or when I was a kid, uh, my parents had friends who had a kosher bakery in Margate, the very large um, Jewish community in those days in in Margate. And these friends had a wonderful kosher bakery. And I remember they would deliver all this amazing bread, poppy seed bread, and all these wonderful sort of baked treats uh, on the weekend, which I do remember being part of our life. And because my grandfather was a fishmonger, I remember that there were set days of the week when we always had fish. Um, Friday night, but other nights of the week too. Yeah. Um, and what made us unusual, perhaps, was that we often had smoked haddock for breakfast. Mm. But did you I hate re- it? I mean, no, I a- loved it. Oh, really? Gary. I loved it. Wow. And it, do you remember back in the day when smoked haddock in England was really yellow? Yeah. They just was, put a dye on it, I think. I know, but I didn't know that <laughs> when I was a kid. I thought that's the colour of the fish. Yeah. Um, but that sort of yellow smoked haddock with a big pat of butter on the top was a wonderful breakfast, and I thought that was completely normal. My mum was a really good home cook. Plain, but good home Mm. cook made everything. But I was so jealous of my friends who used to have things like, terrible things like smash, which was like Mm. powdered mashed potato Mm. and um, 
Findus Crispy Pancakes or yes. Angel Delight. You see, which I is, loved all those things. It was all junk. It was, it was like terrible junk. things. But Gary, I mean, you're you're a bit younger than me, um, but you're talking about the 70s. Yeah, yeah, it would be. I used to have ridiculous adverts which were like aliens that advertised this powdered mashed potato. Yeah, I think it was mash with, get smashed. With mash get smashed. And all the Australian audience going, what are you talking about? But genuinely people thought this was like amazing stuff. Mix but it Gary, with hot water and you had mash. You are so right. And this is a conversation I have often with people <laughs> and people don't believe me. But in the 70s, there was actually a premium on that food, that junk food, it was considered superior to fresh food. Yeah. It fresh was like food was science boring. Science fiction. Yep. At the same time, famous for cockles in Margate. No, every seaside yes. town. Oh, cockles and winkles. Did you hate them? Yes, I did. I, I still do. Too. Still do. <laughs> Essentially just pickled. You know, if you think of clams, yeah. if you don't know what they are, that's what they are. And my yeah. dad loved them. Things like Jelly Deal and, and mm. I actually still don't really like them, to be honest. Well, I, I can remember there would often be like a bucket of, of winkles and things sitting in, in, a, in, in the corner of my, my paternal grandmother's kitchen. And I don't, I don't think I ever saw her cook them, but the intention was always there. And I think I would have probably been the one, or my brothers and I would have been the ones that would have collected them from the beach and yeah. then brought them up to, to Gran. Um, and she was always going to do something with them, but I'm sure they went out. She, <laughs> she threw them, them on the free. garden or I don't know. Yeah. what. Set, took them to back them. to the beach and set them free. So can I take you back just... To something you said earlier, at 14, yep. with mm -hmm. your dad sadly passing away, how did that uh, change your life? Um, I think uh, the, the, the simple answer to that is I think you suddenly grow up very quickly and you become much older than your years. Uh, you know, one minute you're just a normal 14-year-old and, and then you go back to school a few weeks later after that's happened and you're suddenly a lot older. Even though you're still only 14, you're a lot older than your classmates, than mm. your contemporaries, because you've you've experienced something that none of them have. Um, and I think, yeah, from, from that point onwards, I think I probably became much more serious, um, a little bit more worldly wise. I think, mm. yeah, I think I grew up, I grew up a lot quicker than I probably would have done otherwise. Did, you, did your other siblings handle it, handle it in a very different way? I mean, or did you... What? Um, look, my younger brother was pretty young. He was like 10 years old. And to this day, you know, he says basically he, he doesn't really have strong memories of his father. Um, I was 14 and my older brother was 18. Um, I was never particularly close to my father. I, I'd be quite upfront. Uh, we didn't have a close relationship. So I probably didn't struggle with my father's passing in the way that my older brother and my mother did, um, who had a, you know, they had a better, obviously a much closer relationship to him. Mm. Um, but I think for me, the difficulty was seeing the uh, incredible impact that that death, that passing had on my mum and other members of the family, you know, mm. his, his, my grandparents and, yeah. And it was a time of great sadness, but my, my mother was very, very good at sort of brushing herself off and, and picking up the pieces and, and getting on with life. She was young. I mean, my mother would have been, oh, I don't know, 41 or something when he passed away. I think yeah. it's, you know, when you're younger, you tend to think of your parents, you know, when I think back of my own parents, mm. I thought of them as always being old. But mm. then when I, when I think back, I go, gee, you know, when I was 14, they were like only, you know, 30-something, you know, 39 yeah, yeah. or yeah, something yeah. like that. And how did you think about that, say, in your 
your, your father's passing in, in your 20s, for example. I mean, because it's, you know, when you're 14, it's, there's a lot going on in your life, isn't mm. there? And, you, you know, having stable parents around you make a big difference, don't they? Yes. I mean, look, I, I think an honest answer to your question is I worried a lot about my mother. I mean, sadly, my mother's no longer with us either. She passed away about 20 years ago. Mm. Um, but I think for the rest of my mother's life, I used to worry about her. I used to worry about her being lonely. I used to worry about, you know, would she ever meet anyone else? And I wanted her to. You know, I wasn't. I, I really, sadly, she didn't. Um, but I wanted her to. I think I was very conscious of the impact of my father's passing on other people's lives more than my own. Mm. And I, and I, I, that's entirely because, as I've already mentioned, I didn't have a particularly close personal relationship. Yeah, I don't know how that relationship would have developed had he lived, and as as we both grew older, I don't know. I'll never know. Yeah, and I, I like to, I like to think that we would have grown closer. And families being families, you you never know, do you? How no. close or how no. you know far apart you end up being. Mm. So, what were your drivers back then? So, when you were at school and you were you get to that point where you got to make a decision about your career, what were the drivers in your life? What did you what did you think you were going to do versus <laughs> what you ended up doing? Or okay, um, <laughs> what I really wanted to do was to be an actor. Ah. And? I wanted to I wanted to go on the stage, but I went to university and studied English literature with theatre studies, not drama, but theatre studies. Um, and I think I realised very early on in my university career that I didn't have that that fire in the belly, that passion that I noticed all the other kids that wanted to go to stage school, and they all had it. They lived and breathed it, and they were also incredibly extrovert whereas I was incredibly introvert. Um, you know, I, I was very, very shy, very withdrawn. Um, and I just, yeah, that, that fire kind of went out pretty quickly. Um, but that was all I was dreaming of, you know, all through school and that, yes, I'm going to get to university and I'm going to, then I'm going to be an actor. I don't think I ever really thought how I was going to achieve it. Um, but no, I never went down that path. So how strange life turns out, doesn't it? Well, yeah. You know, doing what you're doing now, for example. Doing what I'm doing now. Maybe I'm making up for lost time, yeah. <laughs> I at, love that. At, yeah, in my late 50s. That's okay. It's never too late, is it? I love <laughs> no, it. obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also, I, I love the fact I was reading somewhere, you know, obviously because it's the same era. Yeah. Um, you went through this period. I think it was the first one that I laughed at. It was Diana Ross, oh, George yes. Benson, a little bit of David Bowie and Chucka Khan. I love, yes. I love that little quote from somewhere. What was that? Tell I us about what you were I, reading. I don't know, but that was a very specific point in time. Yes. I imagine you as a new romantic. Yes. You know, I don't know, um, something draped over your shoulders, oh, bro I, brooches, brooch, yeah, 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 yeah. big suit and eyeliner, something like that. Oh, the, the whole works, Gary. <laughs> I mean, that, but that was a bit later. That was early 80s. That was when I was at university. That was when I was at university. Yeah, the new romantic uh, era. Yeah. Oh, yeah, full, the full face of makeup and, <laughs> and the, the, the gelled hair and the whole shebang. Because um, I had hair in those days. And quite a lot of it. Yeah. Um, but prior to that, in the 70s, when I was still in my teens, um, I was a committed, what we used to call a soul boy. Mm. You remember those? Yeah. Soul boys? Yeah. It, it didn't mean you were like a disco dancer. It was much more sophisticated than that. It meant that you were really into sort of underground dance music, soul music, no, nothing, nothing that went into the pop charts. Good God, no. Anything that came in sort of on special import vinyl, 12-inch yeah. vinyl from the United States, jazz, jazz funk, all that kind of stuff. 
And in Margate, where, where I grew up, we had this amazing nightclub on the seafront in Margate that was famous all over the UK called the Atlantis. And it was actually there, I think, until the 90s. But in the 70s, it was in its heyday, and it was this sort of smoky, smelly, I was going to say sweaty, but I don't think it was sweaty. <laughs> Maybe it was sweaty. Sweaty, smoky, smelly, <laughs> underground place that that basically it was rough as all guts, you know, fights frequently breaking out and, and very, very undesirable people on the whole. <laughs> but the music was incredible. Yeah. And nowhere else in the county of Kent played music like the Atlantis in Margate and and you'd get busloads of people coming down from London and other parts of England on the weekend because they they knew about that place. There you go. And a perfect foil for the young Neil Whitaker. I love it. Any get your shirt off on the dance floor back no, in those days? No. Come on. Didn't do that until I got to Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that. Come on. Oh, I remember the first time I ever went to Ark Nightclub in Sydney um, in probably 1999. Um, and, you know, I was in my late 30s by then. And um, I remember going into this club and everyone had their shirts off. And I'd never seen that before. I thought, what is this? What is this thing about Australia where they take their shirts off? Uh, I never did, actually. When I said I took my shirt off, I was joking. I hope you're not, because I'm hoping at some point at least we get to see a 30-year-old Neil with lots of hair and his shirt off. I think that no, would no, be no, had no, 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 no. 30-year-old Neil didn't have any hair. Oh, I hair lost gone. My, I lost my hair very young. Oh. Um, I started losing my hair when I was in my 20s, so by the time I arrived in Australia, I was, I was bald. It was the man we see today. Well, pretty, well a bit younger, but yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that transition to life in Australia, because it, I can relate to it, I think, at some level. We've got different experiences, obviously, but mm. you obviously still appreciate that. Oh, big very much Big so. change. Yeah, but it was a change that um, that kind of had to happen. One of the things that I've, I'm most sure about in my life is that I was meant to end up living in this country. And that there has never, I can honestly say that in, in nearly 21 years, Gary, there has never been a moment when I've, I've regretted it or thought about moving back to the UK. This, this place is absolutely my home. And what, what are the things that the, the identifiers for that? Why does it have to be? What are the things that you rely on, that, that you love? I think what I love about Australia, I mean, there are many, many things, but what I love about Australia probably the most is the can-do attitude that exists in this country. You know, I always say that, you know, it, it, a Brit will normally find sort of um, 10 reasons for not doing something before they find one reason for doing it. Mm. Whereas in Australia, we'll, we'll find 10 reasons for, for doing it before we find one for not doing it. I think there's a real can-do um, and quite democratic attitude here. You know, we, we talk about it as, as the you know, land of the fair go, and I think that's absolutely what it is. When we're not sort of driven by that class hierarchy that you get in the UK, which still exists to this day. Mm. Why do you think that is? Why don't we have it in Australia? Yeah. Because I honestly don't know the answer to that. I really, I've never thought about why it, it doesn't exist in this country, but I'm glad that it doesn't. I mean, I don't think I could have possibly had, uh, I couldn't possibly have had the career in the UK that I've enjoyed in Australia. Those, yeah. those doors would have been closed. They would never, you know, I would have struggled to have ever moved out of the kind of publishing that I was doing 25 years ago. I wouldn't have been able to move through different careers and end up working in television as I do now. That would, that would never have happened. And, and people say, oh, you don't know that. I say, well, actually, yes, I do. Yeah. I do. 
Um, I, I've tended to, um, the way I've tried to make sense of it, because I always feel the same way, we're eternal optimists here. Mm. And when, I, when I've ever talked to yeah, people okay. back home, I find them a little pessimistic. But then I yeah. go, well, you know, growing up in the times that we did, there was a reason for that pessimism. It's the pain. You know, maybe yeah. it's the pain of being so close in directly affected in World War Two or Depression or Maggie Thatcher and the yes. very difficult yes. years that there's always a sense like Dad would always go, oh, be careful. Mm. Like don't spend all your money or don't mm. buy that car or don't do this because yeah. you never know what's going to happen. Whereas I think yeah. in Australia, in a sense, we've been distanced from a lot of that pain mm. and so it, it, it doesn't pass to the next generation and we feel quite good about everything. Not mm. everybody, of course, the yeah. people with difficulties. Whether that's right or wrong, I, I have no idea. I hate to hard back, but from acting to editing or journalism, mm -hmm. that's worlds apart. I think I read somewhere that you worked for ID magazine. Is that right? Was that yeah? Was that I did. God, um, but, oh, I know we're jumping around, but I'm just kind of no, connecting, no, 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 just we're, connecting no, the dots. You know, even I'd forgotten that. Yeah, for like five minutes, I think all of five minutes in the in the sort of early eighties. Uh, but what was it? I came back after uni I graduated from university in eighty three. Uh, then I went travelling for about six months, so about 1984. Uh, yes, I did. I worked for ID magazine. That was my first ever gig in magazine. Was it accidental? Do you know what, Gary? I can't even remember. I think I would have applied for a job. There must I must have seen something advertised and I would have applied for it in the old-fashioned way. You know, I would have probably written somebody a letter and sent them a CV and put a stamp on an envelope the old-fashioned <laughs> way. And then a few weeks later I would have got a phone call. Um, but it was like, a, yes, it was like an internship. I don't think I even got paid. Um, but that did kind of, it kind of set me on a path. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but it, it did, because from there I moved into the fast and crazy, furious world of PR, fashion PR, for a few years. I worked for Lynn Franks, who was basically the, um, the that's who the character of Eddie Monsoon was based on right. in Ab Fab. Yeah. Lynn was the place to work in the in the fashion industry. If you're going to work in public relations in in the eighties in London, Lynn Lynn had her finger in every single pie, and it was a wild, crazy time. You can't go silent when you say that. You can pause. Oh, you can pause. I can pause but then, well, maybe I'm pausing for dramatic effect. Because yeah, dramatic it, effect, and then okay, tell well, us something. You, you okay? You <laughs> where where were you, Gary, in, in the sort of early to mid eighties? Oh, you don't want to know. Were you in London? Yeah, I'd made this terrible decision to become a chef. No, yeah. Uh, essentially, working in London for me was um, hard and not glamorous at all. I think I was. Mm. You know, you, you would have been one of the guys that wasn't even looking at us, darting you know, in the shadows, in the bright sunlight, trying to get back <laughs> under, get back underground in, you know, some famous restaurant somewhere cooking for the hoi polloi, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was a very different experience for me. I mean, I remember thinking, I think, about four years into working in London, no one ever told me about those other jobs where you seem mm. to have a, you know, bright and, you know, fast and interesting life. Well, look, my okay. I mean, look, if <laughs> Come on. You, a few minutes ago you mentioned Margaret Thatcher, and of yeah. course it was the Thatcher years. Mm. Um, and I think not not that that really sort of registered very much with me at that stage in my life. I was in my early twenties. I was not remotely interested in politics, but looking back on it, I know that those Thatcher years uh, generated 
an incredibly creative art scene, fashion scene, music scene. It was such a fertile time. The early 80s, early through to mid 80s in London was a wild time, you know, for nightclubs and and fashion designers and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of it was absolutely in reaction to that repressive Thatcher government. Um, and so I had a ball because we we represented all the sort of top fashion designers of the day, but like very street fashion. I'm not talking about sort of classic fashion. So, you know, the, Catherine Hamnett, for example, who was the, the, the flavour of the, of the 80s, you know, with all her politically motivated fashions and that... Um, was one of the clients that I looked after. Um, and then we had a music division at Lynn Frank's PR and we represented people like Lisa Stansfield and Jennifer hey. Saunders and Dawn French and Ruby Wax and Lenny Henry. <laughs> um, and, yeah, the people that... And, and Boy George was always in our office. We had a photographic division where we represented young and upcoming fashion photographers like Mario Testino. Um, it, was, it was a wild time. And to be a sort of a junior in a in a PR office in those days, that was like my finishing school. I learned far more there than I ever did in university. <laughs> Is there a dinner party story that you tell everybody from those days? Um, <laughs> not, no, not really. <laughs> no, look, I mean, I just... I used to hang out at all the amazing clubs, you know, that was like Taboo was one of them where the late great performance artist Lee Bowery used to hold court every every weekend. He was Australian originally but moved to moved to London I think in the late 70s. Um it was the time when you'd see sort of drag stars like Divine for mm. example. You know, you'd 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 bump into people like that at nightclubs because that that was the heyday. That was the crazy time, you know. You, yeah, it was. It was just a wild, and very, very exuberant time, I think, in London, and it was in direct response to that repressive government. <laughs> and do you think, you know, when you look back on that time in your life, because obviously, you know, there's transition, there's career, there's all sorts of things that lead you to particular places. That period of time, what, looking back on it, what did it do for you in your life, you know, personally and anything else? Oh, I did. It did so much. I think. I think I learned the value of my independence. Um, I learned the value of having confidence in myself. Um, I certainly, you know, spent most of that decade coming to terms with my sexuality, coming out as as gay. I mean, mm. that actually happened in the early eighties. Um, but sort of moving to London and suddenly finding myself surrounded by like-minded people, uh, same as me, um, and you know, having my first serious relationship and living, living with a partner, all that kind of thing. It was, it was very important. It was a very important decade. Yeah. You know, I always say that I, I sort of grew up in the 70s, but I came of age in the 80s, and that's kind of how I see it. <laughs> it was a good, yeah, I think, again, I'm just going to romanticise it. I'll look back and go, yeah, it was a pretty good time. It's pretty good now, mind you, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, look, I wouldn't want to go back to it yeah. because I'm very happy where I am now um, and I know that I have a much better life now than I did then, but I'm, I'm proud to have come through that era. I'm proud to have lived through the 70s and the 80s because I think they were really interesting decades. Yeah. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, 
Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. You did a book called Accidental Foodie, didn't you? Mm-hmm. How did that come about? That was kind of uh, me drawing a line under my food publishing career. Um, I published that book in, I think it was 2006, which was round about the time when I crossed over into the interior design world. It was when I took over the reins of, of Bell magazine. But then, of course, a few years later, I, I dipped back into food mm. because Good Food magazine came along. Um, but I, I just wanted to write a book that, that basically allowed me to go back and revisit some of the the wonderful characters in the food world that had made such an impression on me on both sides of the world. And I called it the accidental foodie because that's how I always saw myself. I, I saw myself as someone who accidentally fell into the food world, never planned it, but but fell into it, loved it and stayed for a while. So that was the, that was the name of the book. And then the book was a divided pretty much 50-50 UK-Australia. And it was everyone that I had worked with, as I say, that, that had made an impression on me, everyone from Terence Conran to Donna Hay yeah. and, and a million people in between. Stephanie Alexander was in that book. Maggie Beer was in that book. Uh, Jill Duplay and Terry Durack were in the book. Um, Priscilla and Antonio Carluccio were in the book. Jamie Oliver was in the book. But they were all people that I'd worked with and respected and admired for, for different reasons. And, and what I did was I went back to the UK and everyone was interviewed. I interviewed everyone. So I flew back to the UK and, and met up with everyone and interviewed them and I asked them all for half a dozen recipes. All of them gave them to me yeah. happily. And then we, we put the book together that way. So each chapter of the book was dedicated to a different foodie personality um, and you got a hopefully a good read about them and then you got four or five of their recipes. Yeah. Who stood out for you, you know, personally in that, through that experience? Well, you all, know, all of them. especially? All of them, Gary, um, because, the, you know, the, the, the reason for them being in the book was that they had to have kind of touched a nerve and touched a chord with me on, on some level. Um, you know, I remember when the book came out, you know, people said to me, oh, you didn't include Nigella Lawson in the book. <laughs> I said, well, that's because I'd never worked with Nigella. Yeah. You know, ev everyone in the book I've actually worked with um, in, in some way, shape or form over the years as a magazine editor. Um, I guess my all-time lifelong hero, for want of a better word, would have been Sir Terence Conran. Mm. I've always admired him very much because I think that he, in many ways, invented the whole concept of what we now call lifestyle. Yeah. You know, that he, he was the first person to see the relationship, the correlation between food, hotels, retail, design, fashion, and kind of put them all together and find a thread, a commonality between all those things. Um, and, and to me, no one's ever done it quite as effectively as, as he did. But I admire him for what he did to the London restaurant scene because oh, I yeah. think he was very instrumental in, in bringing life into, into the sort of fairly dull London restaurant scene in, yeah. in the 80s and uh, right through to the early 90s. He was brilliant at understanding, Gary, that the 80s was all about showing off. It was all about showing your wealth. It was all about, <laughs> you know, being out there, being glamorous. And boy, did he do it spectacularly. Yeah. 
Rock up to the front in your buttercup yellow Porsche and give the keys to yes. someone. Yes, <laughs> all that, all that. <laughs> Not Yeah, I was on a bicycle, I think, cycling through Mayfair, wondering what I'd done with my life. Uh, t- <laughs> I'm joking. Let's whiz forward. I think everybody knows that, um, you know, you from the block and mm. actually I love um, your relationship with Andrew Winter. I've always been a bit of fan of uh, Selling Houses Australia, so mm. love it and list it. And my daughter, by the way, just I don't know how many of those shows she's got on repeat from, you know, moving to the country or love it or list it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, she's becoming a nurse. I'm going, why? Like, you, you're just obsessed with these programs. <laughs> Do something like that. But that's... Mm. Um, that's been a really wonderful transition in your television career. You've gone from big brassy block and everyone getting to know you and then having this, I love the relationship between mm. the two. How did, how did that come about? Well, I had met Andrew a few times um, through Shana Blaze, my yeah. fellow judge on the block, because, of yeah. course, you know, Shana does selling houses with Andrew. And we'd run into each other at the odd trade fair or event or something. Um, but it was actually um, Hannah Barnes who was head of, Lifestyle Channel. Um, she's no longer there, but um, a few years ago she was heading up the Lifestyle Channel at Foxtel, and it was it was Hannah's idea to sort of test me out, um, give me a screen test or what do they call it, chemistry test, yeah, with Andrew <laughs> for Love It or List It because they wanted to bring Love It or List It uh, the, the <clears throat> format to Australia, um, and Hannah, who knew me, um, just just had this idea that the chemistry would work. Between the two of us. And it did. She yeah. was right. It did. And now we're four seasons in. I remember when I saw it advertised, I thought, that's odd. I wonder how that's going to work. Mm. And then when I watched it, I just thought, what a great chemistry. It's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. When you, and, and unusual when you get that kind of chemistry on, yeah. on yeah. TV. Yeah, it's, it's like one of those things that, that shouldn't work, but somehow yeah. it does. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, for my sake, I'm very glad it does. <laughs> so how, how's your life changed? Describe, describe that in the last 10 years since really stepping from, because as editor and driver, uh, you're behind the scenes, then all of a sudden you've mm. put yourself out there for everybody to consume. Yeah. You know, how, um, how has that been for you? Uh, if I'm honest, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun and, Gary, there is not a single day of my life when I don't feel grateful for the opportunities that are, that are coming my way. I, I re- and I really mean that, uh, genuinely mean that. Um, it's not something I ever saw myself doing. I never went out. I mean, my, my career, if you know, people would look at my career and think that everything has been meticulously planned, but it mm. hasn't. My career has been very organic. I've always kind of allowed myself to move wi- you know, wi- within wi- – I've always worked – within areas that I've been interested in. But basically, my modus operandi has just been to do things that I enjoy doing. And for many, many years, that was magazines. I guess, you know, Julian Cress, who's the executive producer of The Block, is is the man who I'm indebted to for introducing me to television because he was the one that cast me as a judge on a show called Homemade back in 2009 on Channel 9. And that was when I was editing Bell and and I got cast as a judge on Homemade and I've never left television since. So that's been, what, 11 years now. And that led to The Block and then The Block led to Love It or List It. But uh, I never went chasing that TV career. I never honestly, genuinely, despite all those desires to be an actor all those years ago, (laughs) I thought I'd left all that behind back in the 1980s. I never, ever imagined myself working in television, but once I started doing it, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. 
What do you love most about it? And what, what do you love least about it? There's no least about it. There's there's nothing that I love least. I mean, you know, television, there can be a lot of hanging around, can't there, on set. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I get it. But I that, get a that, bit must be, that must be terribly, oh, it certainly was for me, but terribly frustrating for someone who, you know, is always on the go and busy and you're told mm. to hurry up and wait. Yeah, well, yeah. So, I mean, I, if I had to name something that I like least, it, it would be the, the hanging around on set. Because, <laughs> yes, I am a bit of a, come on, let's go, yeah, let's do go. this, do this, do this. But the thing I enjoy the most is is realising that at this stage in my life, no, let me put that a different way. I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I probably wouldn't enjoy television as much as I do now because I feel that it's being at the stage in my life that I'm at that is giving me kind of permission to be who I am on television because all that experience that I got over all those years of editing magazines, I can now bring to a new audience through television, and yeah. I love that. And it comes easily because you're an expert in your field. Oh, well, thank you, or, thank you. I try to be. I try the, to be. But the confidence, I think, then in that. Well, it's, that, it is about confidence. Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, I would not have had the confidence. The confidence comes with age, because quite often I think to myself, well, not often, but sometimes I think to myself, oh, you know, why couldn't this have all come along when I was younger, mm. and I could have had sort of more years ahead of me to do it. And then I think, well, actually. The reason you're doing it now is because you're the age you are. So just be grateful. Yeah. it would. I always think it, for me personally, it would have been an entirely different outcome. You know, if that had hit, if I had the success that I've enjoyed, and I feel very much the same way as mm. you do, very lucky and um, yeah. very touched by it often, is that if it had happened to me at 25, I would have been completely unprepared and it yeah. would have been a disaster. Oh, well, we, we don't know that, Gary. Not, neither of us know that. That's but, my theory. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, things things happen in life for a reason, and I think they happen at the right time for, for a reason too, and I guess that that's what's happened to me. But yeah. I, I feel very, very lucky and very grateful to be doing the stuff that I'm doing at this stage in my career. What's next? What are you hoping for in the, I don't know, in the next five years? What what are you? Oh, Gary, look, if if I can just keep on doing what I'm doing at the moment... For, for more years, I would be a very happy man because I love what I'm doing. Um, I would love to do more television. I, I really love the medium of television and I, I think it's an important medium and I would love to do something eventually that sort of plays more to my other interests, you know, like that, that, that sort of that touch point between food and travel and design. I, I think there are, there's television to, ex, to be explored around those themes. Um, but let's you know, let's wait and see what what happens. Yeah, enjoy the now and look. I'm enjoying to, the now. Enjoy yes, the exactly. now. I keep trying to remind myself to enjoy the now. It's been wonderful talking to you. Hopefully, you haven't revealed anything that you didn't want to. Um, and maybe when you're sitting in your car on the way home, you'll be thinking about uh, stuff you've talked about. A little Margate, maybe. <laughs> A little bit of Margate. No, it's been great <laughs> talking to you, Gary. Cockles and too. Winkles. <laughs> Cockles and Winkles. Yeah. yeah. And chuck a can. <laughs> So my tips and tricks and talking to Neil and where he's from, Margate, and along that coast in Kent, famous for seafood. People ask me about things like mussels all the time. How do you cook them? I worry about them. You know, if they're open, you know, what should I do? There's a couple of simple little tips that you need to know. Number one, fresh oysters should close if you tap them. It's not a disaster if they're open, but certainly if they're gaping and if they don't smell of the fresh, you know, smells of the sea, then I would just chuck them out. They're not hugely expensive. And it sounds weird to say, but they should feel heavy, which means they're fresh and they're full of water. If you're going to cook them, secret is, and here's a little recipe, take some shallots or a little onion, add some olive oil to a pan that's over medium heat, 
Doesn't have to be super hot. Add some garlic. Add loads of thyme. It works beautifully with mussels. And then add your mussels, put the lid on, and cook them. Give them a shake every so often. Cook them until they start to open. And when they start to open, you might lift the lid, have a look, give them a stir, and you'll notice that when they're cooked, they look plump and appetizing and delicious. If you want, you can strain them. You can take the juices from cooking the mussels, put it back in the pan, add some cream, chopped parsley, squeeze of lemon, chuck them all back in the pan, give them a stir, and then get stuck in. And I don't know if you know this, but once you've eaten a little mussel out of the shell, you can use that shell like a pair of tweezers and then pluck the other mussels out of their shells. And now I'm talking about it, I'm getting hungry. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Darcy Thompson.